Hi, I'm Dr. Jared, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast, a show for plant killers, green thumbs, and everyone else in between. Listen along as I deconstruct the craft and practices of remarkable horticulturists so that you can better cultivate your plants and yourself. Let's grow. This episode of the Plantastic Podcast is brought to you by Nissa Sylvatica, a.k.a. Black Tupelo or Sour Gum. Tupelos are one of my favorite native trees for their beautiful shape and ecological value. Tupelos were named after the water nymph Nissa, an allusion to this genus's propensity for water. However, Black Tupelo can be found on drier sites and in woodland settings, hence the epithet Sylvatica, meaning of the silva or of the forest. Plants usually grow in the 30 to 50 foot range. However, older 80 to 100 foot tall or over specimens can be found out in the wild. In the spring, the plant is covered with lovely lush green leaves, which are then followed by the flowers. Tupelos have an interesting flowering condition called polygamodiaceous. Now, dioecious means that male and female flowers appear on different plants. When we add polygamo in front of it, it means that usually you have some perfect flowers that are both male and female on these single-sex trees. So it's a nice backup for seed set in case the opposite sex is nowhere nearby for cross-pollination. And while flowers are not showy, all tupelos are beloved by beekeepers for the famous tupelo honey. The fall is one of my favorite times to enjoy tupelo because the leaves turn a brilliant red color. That's how I first noticed them growing on our property was the crimson leaves in autumn. If you have female trees, you'll notice little splashes of black fruit amongst the fall foliage. And in the winter, you can appreciate the blocky bark and the tree's beautiful architecture. More horizontal branches inside with weeping branches down below. There's some really neat cultivars available too. Sherry's Cloud has this lovely variegated foliage. Zydeco Twist has this cool wavy growth that makes it nice for smaller gardens. And Wildfire, a cultivar I just planted here in front of our house earlier this year, has hints of red in the new emerging foliage. So give Tupelo a try. Nissa Sylvatica is hardy to USDA zones 4 through 9. You can find it and many more great plants at your local garden center. Hi everyone, I'm your host, Dr. Jared, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Plantastic Podcast. Thank you all so much for the great feedback you've been giving me and for sharing the podcast with others. The positivity really continues to push me forward to make these interviews the best they can be to help everyone become better plants people. Today I share an incredible interview I had with Ethan Kaufman, the director of horticulture at Stonely. Like really, we had some great conversations and went deep on several topics. A little bit of background for Ethan. He developed his love for the natural world, exploring the hills in southeastern Pennsylvania growing up. He cultivated his horticultural perspective over two decades of gardening in the Deep South, including working at Riverbank Zoo and Garden, and then as director of Moore Farms Botanical Garden, where he led the transition from a private pleasure garden to a public botanic garden. 
Drawing on influences from both regions, he currently serves as the first director of Stonely, a natural garden, a 42-acre former estate located in Villanova, Pennsylvania, which opened to the public in 2018. At Stonely, he enjoys creating a garden experience that inspires others to garden for beauty, biodiversity, and the health of our planet. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation because we cover a wide range of topics. And partway through, I segue into discussing the super bloom Nigel Dunnett's planning that we saw on our trip to England. So I hope you enjoy this fantastic chat with Ethan Kaufman. Hi, Ethan, and welcome to the Plantastic Podcast. I'm thrilled to have you today as a guest. Thanks, Jared. It's a pleasure to be here. It rained. So I'm in good spirits. I How much did y'all get? It's minuscule. We got a third of an inch, but it was a hundred degrees for two days in a row. We hadn't had rain in weeks. And so it was, it was nice. We got two tents the other day and it was glorious. Yeah, it's glorious. Yeah, definitely. So I'd like to start where we always start these discussions to address how you got interested in plants and horticulture. Could you talk more about where your interest in plants began? Yeah, that is. I think it's a great question probably for everybody and there are a million different answers, but I feel like I'm an accidental horticulturist. I I never thought I would be working with plants like ever. And I thought it was this sort of, when I was a kid, I thought it was this arcane thing, this thing that only grownups did because that's who you saw doing it. My, My mom gardened and my dad gardened. They weren't experts by any means, but I grew up in a row house in the city. And so with my mom, my parents were divorced when I was two. And so I had this kind of country upbringing with my dad and the city row house upbringing with my mom. And they both introduced me to the natural world, but in different ways. And my mom had this, again, we had a small little postage stamp yard and she would grow peas and typical things like that. And I remember the very first plant that I ever put in the ground, I actually picked it out in the nursery with her. I must've been no, first or second grade, but it was a bleeding heart. And I always, and I planted it with my mom. That's a powerful memory. I Definitely. still remember that. And I carry that with me, but, um, and my dad always was taking us in the woods. We grew up in, uh, Southern Lancaster County. So there are lots of river hills and he's a hippie. I was at Woodstock and everything. And so we came naturally, but honestly, I never thought about plants as a career. Even in college, I had classes. I was a biology major. And so I had classes with horticulture majors sometimes and some like field botany. And again, it just seemed like this sort of strange thing. I was like, oh, that's interesting, but it just seems beyond my sort of understanding. And I did have a field botany class in college and I loved it. It was taught by Timothy Spira and it was fantastic. And it was my first, I'll say, mini awakening to plants. And, but I was always interested in vertebrate zoology and especially snakes and reptiles and herpetology. And that's what I thought I was going to do. I, my brother and I, Jared, believe it or not, we had 35 snakes in our bedroom when, when we were in high school. <laughs> 35. In containers, yeah, right? Them, and, oh, and needless to say, I don't feel like I got a lot of dates because of that. <laughs> not often when you're like, but I knew if somebody was interested in the reptiles, then it was like legit. But anyway, so that's what I thought I was going to do. I thought I was going to work with reptiles, amphibians or animals. I don't know. I graduated from college. and just didn't know what. I didn't remember looking through the newspapers. Okay, what do I do? And ended up getting a job at a nursery. I'm sorry. It was a corn. It was DeKalb. So it was like a corn research place. And I was just summer sure. labor. Yeah. I was just pulling ears. It was hard work. I did it all summer. And the manager was from Cornell. 
And he's like, oh, you have a friend who has a greenhouse. And I was just looking for work. And so he set me up working at this wholesale greenhouse. And I guess that's what started it. It was just a means. It was just, some, honestly, it was something to do when I was probably 23 years old. Yeah. Well, that's a great story, especially the snakes. I love that. So you graduated from Clemson, right? I did. Okay. And, did. So and there was there's a horticulture program there at the time. And I had actually one of my roommates was a horticulture major, but he was a turf grass guy, which a little bit different breed. And yeah, lots of great, you know, South Carolina Botanic Gardens right there. I don't know if you've ever been. Have you been to that? I don't think so. I have been to South Carolina to visit gardens, but I don't think I've ever been to there. Okay. Yeah. So you graduated from Clemson with a biology degree then? Like maybe an invertebrate zoology or something? Yeah, vertebrate. So I would go to the botanic garden and there were these cool uh, black belly salamanders that I used to find there in photographs. So I would actually go, and turtles, so I'd actually go there and look at the wildlife instead of the plants. (laughs) Yeah. That's part of the beauty of gardens is they just fit people in different ways in life. Uh, Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't, I worked at this nursery. And I, I operated, have you ever seen one of these cedars? It's a, this big machine on a conveyor belt and it has this hydraulic or rather suction cup that spits these seeds down in a 400 cell flats. Yes. Yes. They're fascinating. I show videos of those in class too. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I operated all summer. I did that. Wow. Then, yeah. It was interesting. Why well, did it for a year? Every day I would just go in there and operate this cedar. And I had a girlfriend in South Carolina at the time and. I was in Pennsylvania and I was looking for a way to get down there. And so I actually moved down, no job with my best friend, who's my college roommate. He was an engineer. He just got a job. And so we got this apartment in Columbia, South Carolina. My girlfriend lived in Greenville. I didn't have a job for like months. I just went down there. I don't know what I was done. Like, <laughs> I'll find something. And I looked in the paper and there it was a job at Riverbank Zoo, part-time uh, gardener. Okay. I wanted to work with animals and I was thrilled to, to work in a zoo. I thought, oh my gosh, I could be a zookeeper. That was my ambition was to be a zookeeper. So go to Riverbanks. I interviewed on the botanical garden side because this garden has, it's unique for a zoo and that it has a standalone botanic garden, public garden across the river. I interviewed there for this part-time job and they walked me around the garden and I'm sure you've interviewed people and if you get a certain sense and you have to ask them, can you tell me about that plant? And they did that and it was a canna and I did not know what it was. <laughs> so if you're in the Southeast and you don't know what a canna is, it's pretty bad. So <laughs> they didn't hire me, but they told the zoo horticulturist that here's this guy, doesn't know anything, but you may want to talk to him. So I talked, interviewed over there. They hired me part-time horticulturist at Riverbanks. And I remember when I got that job, I was like, oh my gosh, pinch me. Like I was walking around the zoo. I was so excited. I loved it. That's awesome. So how long did you work at Riverbanks? I actually ended up staying there for eight years. Wow. And were you only on the zoo side or did you migrate over to the Botanic Garden side any? I wasn't just on the zoo side, but I spent a lot of time over there. There were so many interesting plants. And that was my, I think, my real introduction to public horticulture. And so from there, how did you make the jump to more farms? Because that's what came next in your career. Yeah. So Riverbanks, I, I met a guy by the name of Jenks Farmer. I don't know if Jenks. I know Jenks. Yeah. Uh-huh. He came and spoke one time at NC State. And really, we've just kept in touch over Facebook over the years. So yeah, really nice guy. Yeah. So Jenks was the 
former, I guess they called it a curator at the time, but he managed the Riverbanks Public Garden. And he contacted me and said, I've got this job. It's at Moore Farms, Lake City, South Carolina. Are you interested in coming and talking about it? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. So I went out there and it was out in the middle of nowhere in the PD region of South Carolina, tobacco country, about halfway between Florence and Charleston. Actually, it's closer to Florence, but anyway, yes, yeah, so I went out there and we talked and I guess he liked me. So he offered me a job out there. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I, I like I said, I, I don't have any formal training in horticulture, which is a funny thing, John. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on what that means, but I never had an internship. I never had any kind of college classes, but after, now after 25 years, I, I don't really say I don't have training. I've had 25 years of working in this in this industry. I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts? I'm very curious about what people think about that. We were at Great Dixter a couple of weeks ago visiting with Fergus, and he was talking about how you can go to classes all day long, but really on the ground is where the learning happens. And clearly, if you are being hired on for higher up roles in horticulture, managing people, and clearly it shows that you have the passion and the experience and the knowledge and I don't know, sometimes it's nice to have people who have different backgrounds coming in, grafting different experiences into horticulture, because many people are just going through the system. But when outsiders come in from a different perspective, I think that's very valuable. Yeah, I think that's how I came about is definitely in an unconventional way. And because of, and not only that, but just in South Carolina, where I'm in the Philadelphia region now, which is the garden capital of the continent. Mm-hmm. And there are so many other people here that are professionals and there's a history and a story here. It's been around for a long time, but in a place like South Carolina, we had to drive an hour and a half to the next garden. You can develop outside of that bubble, outside of that sphere of influence. And you might be familiar with those sort of situations too. It's freeing and it allows, I think, innovation of thought and processes to develop that are not connected to what I consider to be the Western European tradition of gardening that is so prevalent in this area in the Philadelphia region. Yeah, that is true. We're definitely kind of in an isolated bubble here in East Texas. You're right. You have to drive pretty far to get to the next garden. So that's part of the reason I started this podcast is just to have conversations with people in different parts of the country and hopefully eventually the world, but just try to learn about more about horticulture to to get better ideas about things. So when you started at Moore Farms, did you start as like an intro gardener level or curator or? No, at the time. So at Riverbanks, I managed the zoo horticulture. But when I came to Moore Farms, it was private, a private home or private estate. And it, there wasn't a lot of organization that way. I, there was Jenks, who was the founding horticulturist or director. And then there were several of us that horticulturalists, but we manage other folks and eventually interns and started this private, it was a private garden, but started transitioning to a public garden. Cool. At either Riverbanks or Moore Farms, what are some of the most valuable lessons you took away from those experiences, whether managing people or also I'm interested in plant tricks, things that you've learned to do with plants that maybe other people don't think about? So at Riverbanks, I think one of the best things I took away from there was that we were given a lot of freedom to experiment and create. And honestly, and I think this is really important in horticulture, is the ability to make mistakes. I think so many people say that 
they're striving for perfection. I hate perfection in the landscape. I think that it's sterile. I think the garden magic lies in the mistakes. It lies in the unconventional and those things that you're not expecting and that sense of discovery that, that follows and that kind of head scratching. And so I think just allowing myself, being allowed to make mistakes and explore and push boundaries and, and think about things in different ways rather than having to do a formulaic gardening style. And that was only amplified when I got to more farms because Jenks is a very creative guy, unconventional himself. And so really opened my eyes to creativity in the landscape and not being afraid to try things that will fail. Again, that ability to fail is also, I know if you're working in a certain situation with financial constraints, that's not an option. But if you are fortunate enough to be in a place where failure is an option, then I think can be really helpful to push boundaries in the landscape and try things that you might not otherwise try. So more farms, there's a lot of experiment, a lot of sort of freedom and creativity at that place. Garden magic lies in the mistakes. I love that. I'm going to put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, it, it's so it's very, it's true, right? I mean, it really is true. It is actually. So one of the students who work with me, she said that one of the most valuable things about working here at the plantry is that whenever mistakes and failures occur, it's a learning opportunity. And I agree with you. And you're right. Some people are not as fortunate to be able to have that freedom to have make mistakes, but I almost think that you have to take 80-20 approach or something. Do 80% what you know is right. And then maybe sprinkle in some 20% of things you, that you don't know. Sometimes it might work, sometimes it might not, but trying to figure out ways, like you said, to experiment, I think that's great advice. And that's really good lessons to take definitely into your career. And it's fun. Like horticulture and gardening is awesome, fun stuff. You know how celebrities and rock stars, they, they probably, they're they like, I can't believe I get to do this for a living. It's like, I can't believe I get to do this for a living. You know what I mean? Right. It's I awesome. Right. Yes. So let's continue the discussion about how you've blossomed in your career. Now that you're the director at Stonely, which is an incredible garden, a new garden in the Pennsylvania area, I'm curious about your adventure into that role. How did I come to Stonely? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I, again, I was at Moore Farms for nine years. I liked it, but I was driving an hour and a half to one way. And so I'd stay over there a couple nights a week. And I don't know, I just wanted more family time. and a, uh, colleague of mine from the Longwood program emailed me about this job up here in Philadelphia. Well, I grew up in Lancaster, an hour and a half away, and it was Stonely. I knew nothing about it. I had no connection to the organization, didn't know anybody that knew anything about it. Came up and interviewed. I walked around Stonely, and at that time, it was about, it was 2016, and uh, you walk in, and you see these gigantic trees, and huge sort of vistas, and slight hills, and this big estate house that sits at the top of a small little hill in the center. And I thought, oh my gosh, <laughs> it's very cool, but this is going to be a lot of work. And I can't remember coming back to the interview. I was like, I don't know. It seems like it'd, be, like it'd be a big lift. And I'm so glad I took the chance and took the job. Awesome. So whenever you came on, it was a brand new botanic garden being transformed from like a private estate. So could you talk a little bit about that process? And also, I know that you ran into some issues with local school and I was wondering oh, yeah. if you could speak about oh, that yeah. as well. Sure. Yeah. So this is a, it's 42 acres and it was a private estate for 150 years. And when we came in 2016, it hadn't had anybody, the family hadn't lived there for four years. It got a little bit out of control and it was 
always, you're familiar with an English landscape garden. I know you just returned from a trip to England. You may have seen a couple that's <laughs> where that style originated. Yeah. So it had that feeling. These big views up to a main house, big trees, forcing your view, and not much under 30 feet tall. We started by, we built a parking lot because you need a place for people to come and trails pathway system. And then we started the landscapes. Nice. And then what happened with the school? Yeah. So about three weeks before we opened and keep in mind, the family who lived there donated this property. They also donated the transition funding to take it from their former family home to this public garden. It was not an insignificant amount of money. It was extremely generous. And so we had used this transition funding to renovate the main house, do all this site work. And three weeks before we were set to open, we took a year and a half to do this work. We got a letter from the local school district. And the letter said, we might be interested in seven acres of your garden. And I remember reading, opening that letter and thinking, what this, that's great, but this, there's no way this can happen. So I uh, went to our natural lands, the organization I work for, went to our board and, and they were like, yeah, some of the attorneys said, yeah, that could happen. It's called eminent domain. Hmm. And it's when an organization or an entity can take something for the greater good of the community. And typically it's not greater good on greater good. Like it was in this case, it's maybe somewhere else that's abandoned or something that's derelict or something that's not in use. So the school district came with about 10 officials, I'll call them. And we had one of our board members join me who was a, an attorney and we walked the seven acres and it was very professional, but we didn't speak a lot. And so after about an hour, we did a couple of handshakes and they said, thank you. We'll be in touch. The next week, a week later, two weeks before we were going to open, we got another letter. And this letter said, we might now be interested in all 42 acres for a middle school. Oh my <laughs> so goodness. it was sort of surreal. And oh my gosh, we had to, to make the decision to turn our sort of grand opening, which was to be a celebration of this new garden and of the Haas family who donated Stone Lake to Natural Lands into an ad advocacy campaign. And so we hired a PR firm that specialized in this sort of disaster assistance. And that's brilliant, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they were awesome. And we gave out t-shirts that first day. We started our petition, yard signs, and we ended up giving out, I don't know, 2,000 t-shirts, 3,000 yard signs. They were everywhere around here. 44,000 people signed the petition. It got the attention of our state representatives who then went to Harrisburg and passed a law in two weeks, bipartisan, that was signed by the governor that actually protected Stonely and protected really everywhere in Pennsylvania where a conservation easement existed, which we had at Stonely. You had a conservation easement, you would then have to prove in orphan's court, if somebody was trying to take your land, they would have to prove in orphan's court that there's not another alternative. So it didn't save us at that moment, but the school district, they went on for another couple months and they obviously couldn't do this. So they relented and, and suddenly was saved. And it was because of the community. It was all those people that stood up for this space and this place. That's amazing. And then just for the listeners, can you explain what a conservation easement is? Yeah, it's a legal agreement between a landowner and an organization like Natural Lands, a land trust that allows the land to be managed in a specific way for conservation. So for instance, 
in your conservation easement, you might agree to not put up a parking lot or asphalt or impervious, impervious services or build in certain areas. Yeah, and so a natural lands, for instance, I think we have conservation easements on about 24,000 acres in the area. So it's really great protection for open space and vital to what we're doing, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just so thrilled whenever I heard that the garden was going to be safe, and it is safe now in perpetuity. Yeah, that could happen again. That's the crazy thing is eminent domain could happen again. But Jared, it was both terrifying and also amazing time for us because so yeah. many people came to help out. APGA wrote letters, all kinds of Greater Philadelphia Gardens, Land Trust Alliance. Everybody was coming to our aid and it was amazing. And we had so much exposure that we otherwise wouldn't have had. And we're connected to so many wonderful people in our community who to this day still feel that connection to this place because it was threatened. They saved it and deservedly so. They should feel part of that whole process. They were part of, not part of, they were the reason why Stonely is here today. Right. Yeah. So as far as Stonely goes, one of the things that impressed me so much is your dedication to native plants that you use in the landscape there in really creative ways. Even on your website, you say native plants with a twist. And so I was wondering how much of that was driven by you, or was that something that the garden already had in mind or the board already had in mind before you came on? That is a really great question. I think one of the most unique things about Stonely is that it is owned by a land conservation organization and a fantastic organization. It's the best one I've ever worked for by far. Everyone's just very passionate about what they do. There's so much transparency and everyone's working for this common goal. It's a, that's a dynamic place. And so that, when I came in, that was, that had been developed by natural lands, this sort of native plant garden. And when I came in, I don't know about you, but native plant garden rubs me the wrong way sometimes. And I'll tell you why, because I don't think it should be the exception. <laughs> it's, it's any other garden, but it's a native plant garden. Why don't we call the things that are not native here, like an exotic garden? <laughs> it should be assumed that native plants are going to be part of your landscape. But honestly, I hate, to, I hate to say this, but it's part of our colonial past and our colonial link to gardens and how we brought, we exploited resources from all these other countries, including plants, brought them here. We didn't really focus on our native species. They were being used by other colonial nations in Europe. Yeah. So yeah, so it's anyway, this whole native notion of a native plant garden is funny to me. But what I like about it for Stonely is that you can look at a garden space. And I think natives and non-natives together, as long as the non-natives, of course, are they're not invasive or otherwise deleterious to the environment, I think is great. But I do believe in majority natives. And I do think when you have, if you're looking at this vignette or this garden space and you can say everything in that is a native species. It's much more powerful than saying 70% of that is native species. And so for a garden like us, it's really important to stick to that 100% native, except for existing trees, which we have honestly by biomass, or we have a lot of non-native tree species. By biomass, it's probably pretty close. There's there are a lot of non-native species here, but in terms of taxa, it's 98% native. Mm-hmm. So in terms of diversity, it's much higher than native, but biomass is, we have some big old Camisiparis and things. Anyway, so this notion of a native garden was the first sort of thought. And we took that and again, thinking about how we understand this sort of interconnectedness of all living things and what that means and took the notion of native plants and made it more about biodiversity and creating a garden that's not only beautiful and appealing to us as people, because all gardens need to be that too, 
but to a place that was also supporting our local ecology and our suburban wildlife and community. Yeah, that's so rich. I'm just trying to process it all. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. My, it, and I'll be honest, I always loved native plants. I was always a guy out in the woods ever since I was a kid. And even when I got into horticulture, I was always in the woods. And I find it so therapeutic even now, what I call like an extroverted introvert. And so I need to get into the woods and recharge like alone, like a lot of times alone. That's my time to just, just everywhere you look, you're learning, you're experiencing, you're seeing, you're feeling. And so that's my time. And so coming to Stonely was another opportunity to marry those two things. We're doing a lot of these wild collections and bringing them to the garden, but also again, thinking about biodiversity and wildlife. And it was perfect marriage because of my background and but I wanted to be a vertebrate zoologist. And so I was like, wow, this is like this perfect sort of coming together of things. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So at Stonely, I was curious about your cultivar selection of plants because when we did a walkthrough last year, last summer, I was blown away. You had cultivar selections of plants, like you had a variegated red maple that I'd never seen before. You had a weeping cladrastis uh, oh, yeah. that I'd never seen before. You had a variegated nissa. So Clearly, you have taken the notion of a native plant garden and you have elevated that and raised it. And so I was just curious, what's your design thought process that goes into that? And how do you figure out that there are all these different varieties of plants out there? Do you just go through catalogs left and right looking for them? Or what's your process on that? No, that's a great question. In terms of U.S earlier about the, and I may not have answered, but I want to go back to that, about native plants and using them in creative ways. So I think that stems from, again, just wanting my time at Moore Farms and just wanting to experiment and how plants are meant for us. I hate to say, <laughs> yes, they're part of nature, but we're just, can, gardens are our perception of nature and it's the way we control and catalog things. And so plants are there for us to manipulate and at least the way I like the garden in different ways. and cultivars really help us in terms of versatility in the landscape. So you can have something, an example I talk about is sometimes is like red buds, which 20 years ago, they flowered in the spring, but that was what you knew a red bud was. And it was an, it was one trick, but an amazing one trick. Now through all this breeding, we have all these foliage varieties. We have weepers, we have even some that are grafted low that you can use as a ground cover. And so it took this one species and made it so much more versatile. And we like to exploit things like that and use different things. And then also these cultivars, I think are really important because again, not everybody is on board with using natives. So sometimes there's a perception that they're boring or that they're messy. I don't know how people can think that, but I think it's because we need to start using them in ways that are not boring and not messy. And not only that, but these cultivars really broaden the appeal of a native species. You can take something that, again, I spent a lot of time in the woods, and so you might see something, for instance, I don't know. You mentioned Nissa. Nissa has great fall color, but if you can find one that's variegated, like the one that we have, it's like a whole different animal. Or sweet gums. We have one called Nari, or sometimes known as Nari Light, and it is shockingly yellow and gold in the landscape. It is an mm -hmm. amazing plant. And most people in the Southeast Asia hate sweet gums. They're like, oh, it's a <laughs> tree. Yeah. They're like weeds. So I think by making buffers make broaden the appeal, they get more people excited. And 
And so my process in terms of finding those different things, I'm obsessive about it. I have my check. <laughs> I don't know how you are about plants, but I'm kind of like, I love them. And I'm watching TV and I'm on my phone, like looking through catalog. Oh, this nursery <laughs> boy just got these in. I send myself an email. Yeah. <laughs> I have friends that I might talk to and say, oh, do you, do you want to find this? Or sometimes I'll go, I'm a junkie. I'll go to Home Depot in the spring and I'll walk and see what they have, what they get in. Sometimes yeah. I'll pick something up. I'm just constantly on the lookout. I go to other gardens and for instance, I just, uh, there's so many great gardens here in Scott Arboretum. I don't know if you've been to Scott Arboretum. I interned there in 2008. Oh, of course you did. Yeah. yeah, right. yeah. No yeah, worries. No did. worries. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course you did. Yeah. I knew that. That's a wonderful place. And we just went over there and talked to some of their folks and we got some cuttings of some clethora and just going to, to other gardens that have things and seeking them out and putting in that time, I think. Yeah. And just being, just, <laughs> just enjoying it. If you love something, you're going to, you're going to find, you're going to find it, right? Definitely. I agree. So I'm definitely picking up on a pattern here because we're talking about going from 35 snakes in your bedroom yeah. to having 35 different types of circus or red buds and stonely or something. Again, I'm just kind of extrapolating that, but it seems like you're a collection guy because I think even at more farms, Rebecca Turk oh, told yeah. me that you were trying to build collections of magnolias and bulbs for the South. So do you feel like there's this innate collector in you? Yeah, I do. I think there are some people have, it's like the collector gene and some people don't. And I think it stems from a desire, at least for me, I don't know, I haven't tried to analyze that a little bit. I think it comes from a desire to understand and see things from a comprehensive level. Like you want all of them to know what you want all of them to, to understand this plant to its fullest and its uses to its fullest. And plus, again, it's just fun. Like it's, <laughs> who doesn't like getting more plants? Uh, I know I do. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's actually the first thing that I wondered was because I also have a little bit of this collector gene because I love getting my hands on like Leatris and some of these native perennial types, just species types, not necessarily all the cultivars because who they've exploded, but I agree with you. I think it's fascinating to get a collection of plants so that you can learn and study and understand them better. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, I, I like I, I like collections, but I personally like the style that we use here at Stonely is to incorporate them into the landscape in different ways. And I know other places might function in a way where they have this as a geographic collection of babies or historic collection of camellias. But ours are pretty much interspersed throughout. And that's the way I like to do it. I don't like to have collections just for collection's sake. This is the boxwood collection and here are 200, 300, 400 different varieties in this one garden. That has merit too. For sure. But I also think that whenever you mix them all together, it makes it more realistic for the homeowner because the homeowner is not going to go home and plant a hundred. Most homeowners are not going to go home and plant a hundred camellias or something, but at least integrating, because that's what I loved walking around the whole building of Stonely is you had Cirsus red buds espaliated up on the walls and things uh, arching over and things growing up through things. So I think it's good to have that mixed in system. And then, of course, yeah, I, the sense of a polyculture, too, instead of just having a monoculture, helps to buffer against disease and pathogens, too. Absolutely. It's so much more resilient. We planted a hedge a couple of years. I think it's in its second year. We call it the wildlife hedge. And it's a 200-foot-long hedge that, in the historic plans, was a hemlock hedge that was tightly clipped. It was beautiful. It's not something we could come back with today. We're not trying to recreate this garden from a historical perspective anyway. And so when we thought about what we wanted to do, we actually planted 80 different woody plants together in this hedge 
because we wanted to celebrate that diversity of native species and we wanted to showcase this dynamic hedge. And probably most importantly, we wanted to be beneficial to a much broader array of insects and wildlife. The hedge of arborvitae only benefits a certain spectrum of our ecology. And by doing all these different species, we created secure places that were great, like the hollies are great for birds to nest. Vaccinium support a lot of caterpillars for shrubs and all these other, we have vines in there and there's perennial, perennials at the bottom. It's, it's fun. It's like an experiment. Yeah. How dense, like how close did you plant them? Pretty close. It's a double row. So we have, and we tried it to have evergreen on one side or the other, backing or fronting deciduous as it were. And we'll shear it all at about eight feet tall. And it's coming along pretty well, but it's great. That's fun. That's great. So if people were to visit Stonely, what are some other highlights that we see in the garden? Well, as part of that space, we also put in, it's called Catalpa Court because it was the site of the former tennis court. And there's also this gigantic Southern Catalpa tree that is probably about 90 feet tall. It's the state champion and is at least 150 years old. So Catalpa Court, tennis court kind of all melded together, but there's this water garden we put in just opened last year. It's a 50 feet long, 18 feet wide. And what's really great about it is it's biofiltrated. So we don't use any chemicals and introducing water or new habitat to your landscape is really one of the absolute best ways to increase your biodiversity. And so we never had water. And this was something we always lamented. And a donor stepped up and supported this project. And as soon as we put it in, three months later, four months later, we have lots of damselflies and dragonflies and there are some aquatic beetles. That's really cool. I can't wait to see frogs in there. <laughs> it's really fun. Kids love it too. You know, they always splash their hands in it. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Another kind of interesting area is, is what we call a pool house. And I love how these estate gardens, you go in the, like this common vernacular of what people call things becomes what the garden spaces are. Mm-hmm. Pool house. That's what it was. We knocked down the original, but we rebuilt this new one in the same footprint. And we had this opportunity to build a, gathering place. And so we did this bluestone terrace in the shape of the old pool, amorphous looking. And we put in three bogs with insectivores, pitcher plants, which the other sundews and things. And again, I don't know about you, but they're like some of the most charismatic plants that people just gravitate to. They love yeah. them. And kids, especially when you cut open a pitcher plant in front of kids and peel, peel it apart and you see all those carcasses. Oh, they love it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we had a group of students come through and we have some nepenthes in the greenhouse. Oh, yeah. Tropical pitcher plants. So I cut one of those things off and dumped it on the floor and I had them. All 25 of them were like, ah. So I agree. I, I asked a colleague once, I was like, what is it about carnivorous plants? And they were like, we eat and they eat. Again, it's not a true eating, it's more digesting, but that was their theory on why people so well relate to them. That I never thought about that, but I that sounds that sounds about right. People they love pitcher plants and fly traps and all those things. Yeah, but no, those bogs are so rich, and you've got other little species erupting out of there too. Yeah, they're really fun. Lots of different orchids like that, and it's a great place to showcase sort of one-offs or things that would get lost otherwise in the landscape because you are gardening it with minutia. Cool. Awesome. Clearly, as a director of a botanic garden, you were managing staff and volunteers. I was curious if you could talk a little bit about that because when having other conversations with people on the podcast, there's been some tips and systems that people have used to make the benefit that you're getting from these people the best it can be, but then also making sure that your staff and volunteers are getting the best out of it as well. 
we're five years into our journey. It's awesome. I work with a great team. We have, and I'll tell you what, I don't know if you use volunteers or work with volunteers at where you are, but oh my gosh, we have the best volunteer community. We're really fortunate to be in a community that has, again, such a sophisticated audience for public gardens in Philadelphia. And so people understand and get it before they even come to Stonely, but also they're just such good people. And I think when you're in the company of good, kind people, thoughtful people, it makes everything better. It makes our interactions better. It makes the interactions with guests better. And it just creates this sort of environment that it's, you don't have to add a lot to it if you're, if you have that atmosphere and we're lucky that way, but I become friends with everyone and just taking the time, I think, to talk with everybody that's supporting you and thanking them most of all, but also just getting to know everybody. And I don't know, it's just something I really enjoy. Like I enjoy learning about everyone and sort of their connection to Stonely and much beyond Stonely, what their lives are like. And yeah, I think that's maybe that's the most important tip is just talking to people and learning about each other. Seems yeah. simple. Don't take them for granted, definitely. Do they all come in on one day or do you have time scattered throughout the week for volunteers? Well, so we have two groups. We have ambassadors, we call them, and they're here every day. One or two in the, what we call the welcome kiosk. It's a free garden. So when people come in, they're there to greet them and create this welcoming, inclusive environment. And they also help out with tours and events. And then we have another group that are horticulture. So twice a week, we have groups come in. And then also every Wednesday, we have, and they're called they self-titled the pot stickers. And it's five people that work in the nursery. And so they up pot things and they weed the pots and the plants. And they're awesome. They help us with our plant sale. They're really the backbone of all the work for the plant sale in terms of up pot and getting things ready. That's great. And then how big is your staff at Stonely? We are a small team. So we have, historically, we've had six full-time staff and we are actually going up to eight very soon, as soon as we can fill two positions. So That's we have great. eight full-time Good. staff and then a couple part-time plant recorder. We have guest relations staff that are really wonderful and seasonal work. So, yeah. Have you learned any lessons being the director of managing your team, even though? <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, I think there are always lessons to be learned. And I think one lesson I've learned, I think just trying to be as supportive as you can to the rest of the team, because you are in a position to make decisions. And I think you have to remember that and you're supporting the work of everyone else and helping as best you can and try to direct resources in a way that benefits what we're doing. And I think about that. And I also think about sometimes stepping back a little bit and allow other voices to guide some of the things that are happening in the landscape. That's something I could do a better job of, but that's, yeah, those are a couple of things. Yeah, that's good. Good. So jumping ships a little bit, I want to talk more about how you cultivate and grow yourself as a horticulturist. So I was curious, do you have any daily practices or weekly practices that you engage in to help make sure that you're constantly moving forward or things in the garden? Oh yeah. One of my, one of, I think the biggest, one of the things that helps me the most is that I'm an observer and I think it critical to being a good horticulturist, to be an observer and to watch, literally watch plants grow. It sounds silly, but you have to have eyes, your eyes on the garden a lot and you have to have eyes on plants a lot. And I guess being an observer might not be enough. Just being a keen observer is also important. So you have to know details, know when that one plant doesn't look quite right or when something's different exactly when it, it needs water because the leaves are looking a little bit different or it has a pathogen or it's ready to be divided or 
the landscape just doesn't look right. We need to edit this garden space. I think observing is really critical. And then taking those observations and acting on them. It's the other important thing. It's not enough just to see what's going on. You have to act. I think sometimes it's easy to look and know what the problems are, but or the opportunities. But if you're not capitalizing, then you're uh, leaving some on the table there. Do you have a system for documenting your observations or is it, do you see it and then you communicate it to someone else or what? Uh, yeah, I think we're so lucky or I don't know, maybe in some ways unlucky, but cell phones, cell phone error is amazing, right? It's like you used to carry around a, a little, did you ever carry one of those little tape recorders? A note that you'd get right no, I actually didn't, but I know, but I've seen people use those before on garden tours. Yeah. I think for me, I've always done so like notebook, pencil, that type approach, but yeah. yeah. I used to use the recorder a lot when I was oh. on more forms. And then now I'm mostly written, but also the cell phone, just taking pictures like, boom. and that way it's documented. Like you have it, keep it in your files. This is what, this is what it looked like then. This is what we did. And of course we have a, our database that we add pictures of specimens mainly. So it's a different thing, but in a similar way. That's cool. Yeah, I heartily agree. Observations are one of those things that you've got to stay on top of things because you can forget things. And so, yeah, that's how you make a garden better. Definitely. Yeah. I also wanted to ask about how you keep yourself current and how you cultivate your knowledge of plants, reading books, blogs, attending conferences. Do you hone into any one of those types of areas? Yeah, I do go to conferences, which I found, I find very inspiring a lot just because you meet so many great people and learn from each other. So I think that's a really wonderful way and it helps, it does help you stay current. I used to read books back back when everyone else read books but now a lot of internet's great it's a really great way to learn and stay current you can really find just about anything whether it's happening in europe or happening here or australia or china somewhere you can google it and learn about it but i also really like to learn and stay current by doing i'm just one of those people that people learn in different ways i just i like to like when you went to england on your garden i know you toured a lot of gardens but isn't that like mind-blowing when you do that in England and you experience just being there and, oh my gosh, it's so stimulating, right? Yes, it so is to go and visit different places. I wholeheartedly agree and see everything they're doing in different approaches and different ways and then trying to figure out ways to bring that back. I am dying to know about the Super Bloom. I've been following this and I'd love to hear which, what your experience was, Jared, with the Super Bloom and some of, if you could tell a little bit about the backstory of how it came about too, I think I would find that interesting as well as everyone else. Sure. Yeah. We can segue and talk about that for a minute. So I just got back from England and it was a spectacular trip. We did 10 days. It was vacation. So it was Karen and I traveling. So we did gardens for me, bookstores, Downton Abbey for her and other things. <laughs> and so one of the things that we went and saw in London was of course the super bloom, which is a planting that was developed by Nigel Dunnett, who of course, a lot of people will know him from the naturalistic planting movement because he's done research on it for years. And of course, he wrote the book Naturalistic Planting Design, where he talks about doing some of these mixes. And of course, he has Pictorial Meadows, which is a company that people can go buy these annual ruderal species. It was planted around the Tower of London, and it was spectacular. Like We saw it the night before the day that we visited, so you can walk around the outside outer loop. And so we went and grabbed dinner and then came back. 
and Andrew Bunting had gone a week earlier. And so I knew that they had lit it up at night. And so I definitely wanted to see it at night. And it looked great from up above with the lights shining on that. I thought that was really interesting was to use some of these short-lived species and use light to enhance the experience. Mm. So we got there about the time that it opened and there was already a few people starting to flood in and you start out the walk through it's very calm it's a lot of blues and whites Mm -hmm. and then eventually we intensify into lots of more species that have like orange and yellows more vibrant species things erupting up out of it and then as you go on it continues to shift through one of the things i loved about it was that they had these little cutouts like little circles that you could walk up into the space but not all the way so they still had this massive space of bloom that you could experience and see there in the moat. I was also very interested in the nuts and bolts of how they did it too. So it looked like the majority of it had been sewn in with seed. However, Mm. there were portions of it where, and I could see this from above, but you have flowers and then you have this patch of no flowers, but it would be foliage that looked like it had been cut down. And so when we got closer the next day, what I saw was, is that it was sod. And so evidently they had weather issues back this spring where they had a really wet spring. One of the volunteers said it washed some of the seed off. And so it looked like to me, they had gone in and sodded. In one space, they had sodded yarrow in. So they just cut two inches of yarrow wildflower mix. And then they bring that in and sod that in. And so it looked like to me too, that where there were some patches and holes they had come in and resod it because you know you could tell that the species had evidently just been put down that week because whenever you move a plant in the middle of summer and it has that wilty look oh, yeah. that's what it looked like but i think it's one of those things too that they're trying to lengthen and extend the season of bloom as long as they can and so for me it was interesting to see the nuts and bolts but i thought it was spectacular again they did it for the queen's platinum jubilee planting. It's just like the super blooms are in California. They're spectacle. A lot of people come to see them and witness them. And for me, seeing something so rich and so vibrant, especially in an urban space like that, it's very encouraging. We have to keep in mind too, that this is a rural mix. So if you want to maintain this, you're going to have to come back in and replace it. Mm-hmm. at some point. So that's some takeaways that I have from visiting, but would I go back again in a heartbeat? It was lovely to see it really immersive experience. Oh, and another thing too, that I left that in one part, they played music. They had mm. this, they had this natural music composer and I have to go back and look at my photographs to remember the person's name, but they have 20, 25 minutes of just this somber, cheerful, melody playing throughout and then they would mix in like bird songs as well too so as you're walking through this space you hear the buses and the cars in the background and then you walk into this one area and it becomes more rich with music so that was a nice touch to enhance a garden i think a lot of people don't think about just putting a speaker out in the garden but that was definitely nice and yeah, thanks. That was a great, I felt like I just visited. <laughs> <laughs> and it, what a great celebration of horticulture. That's, it's amazing. Anytime there's something high profile, like the sort of a showcase of what we do, I think it's incredible. And I agree with you. And I think we have to do things like that. There's this whole thing about plant blindness that people don't see plants. I think for people to see plants, we have to help them see them. 
because plants can't talk, but we can, and we can do things and designs in certain ways to really help people see them better. So thanks for asking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I love the highlight is in a stark urban place where it's steel and concrete, you can't help but notice plants. Like that's what makes it this green ribbon through this sort of one of the world's great cities. And uh, what an amazing thing. That's one of my favorite, I think, things to do is visit other people. We're three miles away from Chanticleer, which is my favorite garden in the country from a horticulture perspective. It's, and I think probably I'm not alone there. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it too. Just the art and creativity. Oh yeah. Visiting Stonely, you see you are weaving art and creativity in the plantings. They've just got a head start on you. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic place with a lot of talented people. And I feel, yeah, I feel really proud of what we accomplished in five years here. And the best is yet to come is what I say. So very excited. Indeed, definitely. I wanted to go back to, you mentioned earlier the word edit, and that is a word that has come up occasionally in this podcast. So for you, what does editing a planting mean? Oh, yeah. Another, you really asked some good questions. So I, I don't ever think, and again, people garden different styles, but I always, I never thought that landscapes should be maintained like snapshots, like these inert things that never get changed. So I do love how things move around. And I think, again, that's where some garden magic comes in. But there are times when you have to take stock of, especially with perennials, where, you know, what the, how it's changed over the years or season and pull things out that don't quite fit in or they become too abundant or you just, maybe they're not healthy anymore. So we actually do that a lot here at Stone. We do a lot of editing because with these native plants seeding in a lot, we have Pennsylvania, this part of Pennsylvania has the best soil. In the Southeast, it was like red clay. It's 20 years of that. And I came up here, it's like (laughs) coffee grounds. (laughs) It's beautiful stuff, Jared. And seeds just germinate so readily. So there's a lot of editing that takes place. But editing is great too, because things seed in. You're like, you know what? That's a better combination than I ever could have come up with. And so you leave it. I love when that happens. Is there a garden book that you return to frequently for inspiration or advice or technique? No, I tell you what I, where I find a lot of inspiration other than visiting other places, two places. If I, if we have time, I, I'm inspired by homeowners a lot. And the reason is because I think sometimes homeowners, they're not burdened by all these rules that they think they should follow and say they they do things that are unconventional, that are original. Like I see meatballed hydrangea corsifolia, oak leaf hydrangea. And I think, why would anyone do that? And I think, oh, why wouldn't you do that? Or I sometimes I'll see like shrubs that have been planted together and they've just been, and you know how homeowners are just shear happy. They just want to shear yeah. everything. Yeah. And they all grow together and they're shearing this sort of multi-species meatball or square and it's cool i get inspired by that they're not burdened by rules they're just doing what they want and then the innovation comes to that whether it's you like it or not (laughs) some people (laughs) cringe it at meatballing a hydrangea course fully but i think it's cool why not yeah Um, so i get inspired by people especially in rural gardens too in south carolina i used to love to see what they'd be up to the people that the neighbors of more farms or they just I don't know. I just cherish those sort of local traditions and local horticultural practices that I don't know. Anyway, and then another place I get inspired is in the wild places for sure, because you read things in, in online or that certain plants aren't supposed to grow this way. But when you see them in their natural environment, 
it tells the true tale. Oh, this does grow in wet. Dogwoods, Cornish, Florida. Like I see those growing in swampy areas and you would never, and we, in fact, we put them in our biosoil after I saw it. I was like, oh, great. I didn't know I could do, we could do that. They're doing great in our biosoil. It regularly gets inundated with water. I think just being out in the natural world is, and we're talking about things that are critical. I, I mentioned observation, but just, I think being in the natural world is maybe more important than anything. Understanding our connection to it and how these things grow without our intervention. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. That's great. And I agree with you. It's fascinating sometimes to see the inspiration you can get from just driving down back roads. Oh yeah. I love doing that. Yeah. Deeper or wild places. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. I love it. I love a road trip. I love like <laughs> England trip. Oh, my wife and I did that a couple of years ago. Same kind of thing. Yeah. Just hit as many gardens as we could. And oh, it was great. We want to yeah. do it again. That's great. So as we're wrapping up, I have a few rapid fire questions that sure. again, these are just things that I've gotten written down that I thought we could address. One question I want to go back to was, you mentioned earlier this colonial link to horticulture. Is there ways that we can help to break that colonial link with homeowners or gardeners, the way that we think and grow plants? Wow, that's a big question. I think so. I think so. I know it's so multifaceted, that question. I know one thing that we've been thinking about at Stonely, and I know that APGA and others are just like these common names that we use that are could be offensive to large swaths of our population. And I think we need to be cognizant of that and change that. Why do we want to hold on to something that is going to be harmful to somebody? So I think looking at why we call it like Clematis virginiata, virgin's bower, is that it's like pilgrim stuff. I don't know. Like, why are we called that Indian pig? There's no need to call that Indian pig anymore. We've changed all our names that, that we've that we can think of, and I'm sure there'll be new lessons to learn as we go. But I, that's an easy step. Acknowledging, I think all kinds of different diverse people that have contributed to our country's horticulture beyond just white cisgendered men. It's critically important getting a wide audience in gardens and also running gardens and running boards and all these other places, I think critical. Good. Great answer. Thank you. I know that you have been down to see the monarchs in Mexico. Uh, Just recently, the International Union for Conservation of Nature put it on the endangered species list. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Do you think it was an appropriate move? And is there other things that we can be doing to try to help monarchs out based on you going down there and having that experience in Mexico? Yeah, first I'll say I think it was a good move. It's the most charismatic butterfly, the most famous butterfly, one of the most famous animals in the world. And just the reaction of the casual guest or the, the person that comes to Stonely, like people know that now. And when you talk about that with them, it strikes a chord. Oh my gosh, monarchs are in trouble. It really motivates people in a way. And you have to have these flagship species for people to care about all the other things that protecting them will protect. And so I think it was definitely a good move. Visiting central Mexico, the highlands down there was such a magical experience. If you ever get a chance, it's not expensive and it's like if you've been, if you've seen a lot of things, natural phenomenon, it's definitely incredible to be surrounded by hundreds of thousands of these butterflies that have been doing the same sort of life cycle for millennia is incredibly special. And it resonates even more. I think when you're there, you see them and that it's not just about our own backyards where we are. This is thousands of miles away in Mexico. It's connected. And what we do here affects what's happening there. 
all across the world. And it, we do all have a role to play. We absolutely do. And we all absolutely should. And we can start incrementally. You don't have to cut all your non-native species down and plant native plants, but you should plant native plants pretty much. If you're talking about breeding colonialism, that's in the landscape. Let's get rid of some of these things that were brought in just for ornamental purposes that are harmful to our environment. Come back with native species that are going to support things like monarchs, but not just monarchs, all our other species that ants and mason bees and American toads, everything else that contributes to the richness of this world. Could you imagine not having these things like monarchs? Could you imagine a world without monarchs? No, I can't. And that's the sad thing is hopefully we never have to, but it's also, can you imagine a world without passenger pigeons? And then now that's where we are or American chestnuts. Um, so I agree with you. I think it was a good move. I really appreciate you speaking from your experience of actually going down and seeing them because you have a unique experience that most of us don't have. For most of us, the monarch is just a thing that flits through. And Karen, my wife, for Christmas, I got her these monarch cages. And at first she was like, oh, you got me laundry baskets. <laughs> and I was like, I would never in a million years get you laundry baskets for Christmas. But we got them and she reared six monarchs this year. And so I agree with you that helping to draw better attention to them is worthwhile. But no, I cannot imagine a world without monarchs. Definitely. Do you, I, growing up in the North and I guess probably you're from Tennessee. Tennessee, correct? Originally from Tennessee, yes. Yeah, correct. I don't know if in Tennessee, I know that, I don't think if Asclepius seriacus comes down that far. It I don't does. think it does. It does? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. we had it. And we had it copious, like large colonies, yes. But I was yeah. amazed. We went up to Michigan in July to visit some of Karen's family, and it was everywhere up there. Yeah. It was crazy. So. That's the way it is here. It's, but like being a kid, I remember I, my dad would always stop on the way home from school to his house of this patch of milkweed on the side of the road. This is Sleepius seriacus. And we would get out and inspect the plants from monarch caterpillars when I was like nine. Oh, wow. There all the time. And I remember like this was such an amazing experience to touch this plump little soft, brightly colored caterpillar that had these little, these little antenna that would get her back and forth. It's just incredible that connection that we have. If we're lucky to the natural world that can propel us on careers like we have. Why did your dad stop? Was he interested himself or was he wanting to share it with you or? Yeah, he wanted to share it with me. He, he knew he liked caterpillars and butterflies and animals. And so he was very, both my brother and I, he was the one that sort of got us into nature and was, he spent so much time with us out in the woods. He was always, that's why we like snakes because he would catch black rat snakes and bring them home. And we had always had things when as long as I can remember, we had a, a skunk for a while as a pet. He would bring home like injured blue jays and things like that and rehabilitate them. And yeah. Well, that's, that's great. I love, I can tell you're definitely a naturalist at heart. Is another quick fire question. Is there a gardening myth that you would like to bust on the podcast? Like things that people believe are the case, but research or experience has shown you otherwise. That's a very tough question. I don't know if this, this is not a myth, but I'm curious, curious to hear your opinion on this too, but I hear a lot of people getting riled up about what people call crate murder. And it seems to be like the cool thing to get mad about it. It doesn't, it, am I, am I uncool when I say it doesn't bother me? I'm like, you know what? I appreciate that cultural sort of tradition of you go to a small Southern town and they cut them back and they're like exploding little fireworks to flowers. Like it doesn't bother me. Yes. I like a big crate murder that's I had one in my yard that was never cut back. It was big and gorgeous. I like them both ways. Is that not cool to, to say that? 
No, I hear people of both camps. I hear the people who are like, stop, create murder. And I also hear the people who are like, who cares? It's polarding. Uh, You go to Europe and people who do it to, I don't know, London plane trays. Yeah, exactly. And people are like, oh, high horticulture. To me, I think the biggest issue is why have we focused so much on this instead of other issues? like native plants or monarchs or water, like filtering water coming off of your house. I think that's the biggest thing with me. So I have an interesting theory on the crepe murder. And my theory is, is that it might have been a response to freeze damage because when we had the massive freeze back in 2021 here in Texas, crepe myrtles looked horrible. And back, even back home in Tennessee, like my mom and dad's crepe myrtle that they have is Natchez. They've got a beautiful one there beside the house that I remember when they planted it. But it took until July for that thing to leaf out. And so that was a theory that I posed. Again, I have very little evidence of this because it may just be that the back person in the country started had to cut it down because it was under power line. And next thing everybody's like, oh, well, I should do that too. But I just find it hard to believe. That the reason that we cut down crepe myrtles is, uh, again, across the entire Southeast is just because of the fact that someone else saw someone do it. So that's a theory that I have. Again, I have no evidence really to back it up, except for the fact that I saw how horrible all the crepe myrtles looked. I've been to the J.C. Ralston Arboretum. I've seen those beautiful 40, 50 tall crepe myrtles. At the same time, people want to come in and pollard them in interesting ways. I think doing it pollarding instead of just going in there hacking back is much nicer. But to me, that's the core issue. There's stop the chop. I want some sayings, feed the bees or feed the wasp or feed the caterpillars. I want some bumper stickers that people can put on their cars basically encouraging more ecology and diversity. So that's my two cents on things. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, that's, yeah, I agree. That's, and that's a great point about focusing on other things like no more Bradford pears. Let's stop. Oh, yes. I know. How long has it taken us now to start getting some of those outlawed? I agree. Instead of stop the chop, let's have some bumper stickers that say spare the pear. (laughs) Something like that. Let's, I I just think it's been a massive investment of time and energy. And I agree with with everybody who's like, oh, I love what crepe myrtles look like and in their full stature form. But I just think that we've got bigger problems going on. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I guess you and I are in the the cool, not cool club, right? Uh, right. (laughs) Sounds about right. Yeah. So second to last question that I always ask on the podcast, propagating horticulturists, just like we propagate plants, what are some strategies and things that we can do to help try to propagate the love of plants and the number of horticulturists we have out there? Yeah, I... That's another great question. I, I don't have a great answer to that other than getting people at a younger age into plants. Like I said, when I was a kid, it seemed so arcane and so complex and an adult thing that kids didn't do. And I, much before university level, I think in elementary schools, we need to have horticulture programs. And these wealthy private schools do a lot, oftentimes in this area, there are a lot of these wealthy private schools and they do have horticulture clubs or horticulture programs, just letting kids touch things like that and knowing then that it's a viable career option. And it's not only viable, but it's wonderful. It's an incredible career. We need mentors who are willing to like yourself who educators who are passionate 
again, like you, and just are willing to put in the time and make a difference. And I think we can all point, and again, you're, this is, you're an expert in this, but I'm sure we can all point to somebody in our lives that helped shape who we are professionally and got us into horticulture or whatever field we're in. And I think the more of those people we have out there doing that and doing a good job, the better. Great answer. Love that. Last question, where can people find out more about you and Stonely? The best way is to come visit us in <laughs> Pennsylvania if you're in the area. We're a free garden that's open every day except for Mondays and we're closed Christmas and Thanksgiving. We have a wonderful staff and volunteers who would love to tell you more about the place. But if you're not in the area, you can check us out on stonelygardens.org. We also have Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to connect that way too. And we'd love to hear from you and love for you to visit. Okay. Thanks so much, Ethan, for the invite to Stonely. And also I'll put the website on the show notes so that people can check it out. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing you next month at PPA. So I chose the tour that had Stonely on it. So I'm definitely looking forward to visiting again and seeing you. Jared, thank you so much. I can't tell you what a pleasure it was to be part of this podcast and and talking with you. And you know what? It really did what you said it would do, connect people over a long distance and hopefully not just us and the other folks that are listening to Yeah. This has been a spectacular conversation. So thank you again so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jared. Okay. Take care. All right. Thanks so much for listening today. Do you have questions or comments? You can visit the plantasticpodcast.com for show notes and to reach out and say hi. Remember plants can't talk, but we can The plant world needs people to share how wonderful these green organisms are. So tell someone a fun fact about plants. Make it simple, make it remarkable, and most of all, make it plantastic. Until next time, keep growing.